I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Lara Lesmes and Frederick Helberg of the experimental design practice Space Popular. Lara and Frederick met at the Architectural Association in London. Lara's originally from Spain and Frederick's from Sweden, and they established their practice after graduating in 2013. They made their name in exploring the architectural potential of digital space, and although their work is inherently speculative, our accelerating immersion in the virtual realm is a testament to space popular's prescience. I reached Lara and Frederick over Zoom in January 2022. I was in London, and they were in Los Angeles, where they were teaching at UCLA. In a recent exhibition at the RIBA called Freestyle, Lara and Frederick made the case that architecture has always been inextricably linked to mass media. And in our conversation, we explore their idea that virtual architecture is itself an altogether new form of media, with the potential to be produced and experienced at the very speed at which it's imagined. We also explore the darker, more dystopian aspects of our increasingly virtual lives, from addiction to surveillance capitalism, and in this light, talked about the responsibility carried by designers of the virtual world. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Um, And just looking back at your early work, uh, and your early projects, there's a remarkable consistency <clears throat> and commitment to to these ideas or to this relationship between um, the evolution of media and the evolution of architectural style um, in a way that feels so prescient, especially now. And I feel like only relatively recently has this concern become uh, a mainstream preoccupation. And especially with, I mean, the, the current kind of events around, for example, Facebook's rebranding to Meta and the popularization of the term Metaverse, which for a long time was purely a kind of science fic- fictional fantasy. At least it was understood that way by the vast majority of people. And then also Microsoft's buying Activision Blizzard for $70 billion. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this, this wider awakening to the significance of not only video games and the virtual spaces and communities um, that have developed around gaming, but also the relationship between game space and um, the metaverse as well. Um, and so there's something incredibly topical, I think, all of a sudden about your fixation as a practice with the virtual and its consequence on architectural design. Um, 
but at the same time, I feel like it's so important to, for me, understand um, where that preoccupation first emerged for you. Because, like I said, in 2013, this is not something that was front of mind for most designers. So can you bring me back to, I guess, the moment that you formed and the way that you developed this, um, this personal agenda? Hmm. Yeah, I think it probably partially actually comes from, I mean, interest that we both had really from even before we started studying at architecture school, but also a little bit, I guess, in the sort of, uh, sort of aftermath of the 90s um, French philosophy wave, let's say, in architecture that, that when we started, when we were both studying at the Architectural Association in London, we both graduated in 2011, there was still some conversations around the sort of uh, Deleuzean idea of the virtual and, you know, the whole psychoanalysis uh, kind of discussions, etc. <clears throat> of course, we were just, you know, treading along uh, as naive students at the time, but started to really think about not virtual space as, as something digital or something computational, but a more broader idea of, uh, of the virtual as just um, more as a conceptual idea not as a mechanical thing, which is now it's, it's really what it's thought about. And we're both really interested in, in, in the sort of power of virtual surfaces, like something like a fresco or something like a tapestry or even paintings to contain information and stories that can have as much of an effect or even more on someone who's in a building than the building itself. So also that and then starting to really do work before we started working with the technology itself really on on this sort of power of virtual surfaces and virtual content and uh, really then when we started to think about stuff that led to the project freestyle always trying to think sort of beyond the moment that we're in because certainly some of the things that you just mentioned, they're really significant now, but there were way more significant things that happened 20 years ago in forming this world that's now unfolding. And really, if, if, um, if anything, Freestyle, that project really taught us and, and something that confirming our kind of ideas before that even, that you really need to look at a much broader historical context in order to understand sort of where we are now, what we're doing, and, and maybe maybe where we're going. And then very directly, um, we did projects as students, imagining sort of buildings being psychological machine that changes when you turn around and when you turn back. Uh, I did a project called the All Thing Hotel when I was in third year, which was like a big machine that physically performed like a VR space. I wasn't even thinking about this stuff then, but it's sort of, it's kind of the same project. It's just done in a different way. And then we started right even before we formed the practice thinking about um what it would mean to be what it means to be together on the internet um and uh, of course in video games and other things like this and our first project really was in 2013 even actually before we formally formed the practice called the cloud resilience which imagined a global mortality rate database uh, which also served as a platform to hold uh, virtual funerals and we designed our first avatars and, of course, speculative in our mind back then. <clears throat> um, and a project that really kind of informs a lot of the way we're thinking because it was both a database that you could experience and you could actually then be face-to-face. -face. 
so to speak, um, yeah. with little, with others. Little did we know when we did that. I mean, now we're doing so much of that kind of work, or and also research with students of thinking about um, well, kind of virtual archives as these kind of complex diagrams that then um, you can access at let's say many different scales. But but yeah, I think then also to say that the there is no particular moment when you kind of make a decision and like I'm going to work on this kind of thing and I must say that like the beginning or like our work as students or especially I guess like also speaking for myself my work as a student and then starting the practice was was really like uh, let's let's do stuff <laughs> and when there is enough of it you can look back and read it um, because very often people ask like oh when, when do you decide to do that and things seems to come together and the, there is no moment in which you make a conscious decision. I mean, ever, it seems, not even now either. But then eventually you, you keep looking back at what you have done and, and try to start to see paths that maybe you have already opened up and you could perhaps follow. Well, let's let's continue looking back a little more at, at the early stages of the practice, which emerged in Bangkok, where you taught for a few years. I know you were based in Bangkok for five years before moving back to London. Could you tell me what you were teaching and I guess also the kind of projects you were working on in Bangkok at the time? Yes, uh, we we moved to Bangkok right away. Like literally we graduated in end of June and we moved there the 1st of August, I remember. And uh, and uh, we started teaching immediately. We moved for, for that uh, teaching job. And... Uh, we thought it wasn't going to work out in the beginning. Uh, a few months later, we realized, like, yeah, this is actually, this can be great. And we ended up staying for a very long time. We we were teaching uh, all kinds of studios from first. I was in the beginning teaching first and second year. You were teaching first and third year, right? And um, we were just writing so many briefs uh, for, for projects uh, constantly, which was... Uh, a, a crucial moment because it, it forces you to think about uh, methods and experiment them with groups of people at a pace that I had never experienced before. I keep trying to bring this back into the way we teach now, trying to create situations in which students have to do these sorts of exercises where they are sort of teaching because I felt like it was the, the most important part of my education happened at that moment when you, when you try to start creating good methods or good structures for people to find means to design and discover things within but still have enough enough of a yeah, enough of a, a guideline to to follow so we taught all sorts of things <laughs> you always like to bring up that the the first brief i wrote this is hilarious i, I mean it's so systematic i was trying to think like, well, usually you are allowed to do formally whatever you want, but you are given usually a brief that has a site and or a program possibly. And I thought like, well, what if all those things are open and instead form is the thing that is fixed and everyone had to build a sphere? <laughs> the only condition was that it had to be a sphere, but it could be anything, any size, any location, any program. It had to be spherical. Yeah. And it was absolutely. <laughs> but so, I think that so kind of is fun. emblematic of, of that whole experience for us because we also very quickly uh, at a very young age became year coordinators, only four years at this undergraduate program. And we were year coordinators of second and third year, respectively, 
and then teaching up to three studios simultaneously that were only semester long, which meant that we wrote over like 40 briefs between the two of us. And that was like everything from a lot of briefs about housing uh, and a lot of briefs about spatial experience and about all sorts of different things. But really weird things here and there, parliaments, Freddie did a whole brief on flowers that was incredibly beautiful as well. That, that's maybe one of my favorite ones. But the a degree of experimenting, because also you were not expected to follow an agenda as maybe is expected in other schools where like as you come in as a tutor and then you're expected to stick to the thing you're doing. And this was like, you could radically shift direction any minute. And uh, that, that's, that was absolutely fantastic. I mean, It's actually yeah. very healthy for a school, I think. I think yeah. it, it evolved so quickly because we were also in our positions in charge with our colleagues for hiring and curriculum writing, which meant that this whole ethos of this kind of fast revolving change of topics and, and new faculty members constantly kind of meant that the school evolved extremely fast into something really quite phenomenal. And it's still one of the best schools of, of Southeast Asia. Not that we take credit for it at all, but so many people have passed through and it's really become an incredible place in the Chuladonkorn University. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, it's so, it's so clear that, um, as a student, um, you go through this really radical process of self-formation, you know, through producing work in, in a school of architecture. But it could, we could say the same for architecture tutors as well. I think in the process of developing briefs or designing studios, there's a similar process of self-formation at play. And Laura, it's interesting hearing you describe that early brief of the sphere where all constraints are removed and anything is possible. Because it reminds me of, um, in a way, the mantra of your practice, which if, if we're looking at the logo of Space Popular is all things, all places. And the sphere <laughs> is the embodiment of this kind of infinite surface. Um, and I'm really intrigued by that early attraction to um, this sense of the limitless, I guess, as it applies to choice, but also to, to aesthetics. And I think one other thing that I was drawn to early on, and this is going to sound superficial, but we're interested in surfaces in this conversation. So I think it's fair game. But the way that you both present yourselves to the world as designers, I find really intriguing. And it, it seems like even that sense of style or fashion for you early on had been um, had been decided. <laughs> and I mean, for listeners who aren't familiar with the practice, uh, if you just if you Google space popular, you'll see Frederick and Laura <laughs> usually uh, be decked in fluorescent garments, often synthetic and billowy, um, and um, I mean, Frederick, you often have some kind of scarf, um, whether it's fabric or fur. <laughs> and I mean, I'm only saying this because I don't see this as often anymore. The, the cultivation of a persona in architecture or design. And so, I mean, could you just as an aside, tell me about your own style? Yeah, I, 
here I really have to attribute all of this to my mother. She, like, since, uh, I mean, I don't know, I feel like I, w I was kind of born into it because from very early on, it, I started to understand now that maybe she realized that in order to create a, a, a sense of um, com confidence in me, she would always say that, like, you can be... Uh, different and it doesn't matter and that you can express uh, through the way you look and it doesn't matter so it is something it's very funny I, I went to a school where we wore uniforms and she always made sure that I wear a slightly wrong uniform <laughs> and that that was okay and I, I remember at moments that was a bit uh, I was like oh this is embarrassing or you just want to be like honest. and then eventually you start to understand the what that what that does to you and the possibilities of the things that you can do with that and eventually just becomes an, an inherent part of um, of how you operate. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I, mean, I find back pictures of when I was, whatever, seven years old and uh, the clothes don't look maybe too different from the way they <laughs> look now or like I had the, whatever, mixing different colors and have, like color blocking and, and all of this was really a, a part of it to the point that it, has become uh, something maybe quite natural that I wouldn't say we don't think about uh, that much. It's just a, a kind of a, an everyday joy of like, and um, it well, it, it it's also a vehicle for um, for almost workshopping around, the, especially uh, color palettes, color combinations, and and texture. So it. It is a very simple thing, I would say, in the end. It is, mm. It's not um, a complicated... There is no many complicated th thoughts uh, mm. behind it. It just... Um, no. Why wouldn't you? You have to make us pick anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... Yeah, and this connection goes, goes also both ways because all of those scarves are from presents from, from Lara's mother without consulting <laughs> oh, no me kidding. first. So, you should yeah. call her yeah. <laughs> instead to ask about this because she's the one that has the strategy. Yeah. I don't know. But I think that generally also connects very much with sort of... Because uh, in my, my context, growing up in a very kind of uh, average middle-class suburb of, of Stockholm where where this was not really a thing. I had a grandmother who was extremely extravagant in a really fun way. Uh, where even when she couldn't walk anymore, she insisted on having her stilettos on in bed. <clears throat> <laughs> and I also had the pleasure of growing up with uh, one of my oldest friends, Nandi Nobel, who was a f who went on to study fashion design. Is actually now one of the sort of uh, leaders of thinking about virtual space based in London now. But he also at a very early age in this sort of middle class environment, um, similar, I guess, to what Lara's mother was sort of trying to influence mother. Lara to to think is that these sort of things they go beyond whatever immediate setting you might you might be in, and there mm. there it's there's not so many like as Lara said so kind of clever thoughts about this. It's just very simply like I remember us saying when we moved to London. It's just when you're in a city like like London, if you if you wear what you want and you feel confident, then often you end up having even more interesting conversations with people. Uh, you know the way that you interface with someone, someone else is ideally deeper than what you see, but that's certainly a small part of it. And I think, at least in my my life, I probably had a lot of really interesting discussions and exchanges with other people because of the way I I choose to dress. Mm -hmm. um, 
I had very few discussions about football and other things that maybe I wouldn't be so interested <laughs> in, and and uh, and more mm-hmm. discussions about other other things, and perhaps also missing out on many interesting things. It's interesting though, because it feels like the styles you've cultivated for yourselves also in a way function as an avatar for the work you do. Um, And what I mean by that is to me your almost your sensibility, your fashion sensibility, it maps so neatly onto the kind of work you design. I mean a lot of your projects um, be they virtual or real, are flamboyant and technicolor. And um, they feel there's something quite lavish about them. And um, there's an intense amount of variety and uh, a layering of different styles from different eras into this very complex whole um, that I think suggests this idea of... um, the complexity of an identity, whether it's the identity of a project or of an individual. And I mean, further to that point, it also reminds me a lot of another designer who in fact was the first person I spoke with for this interview project for Scaffold. It was Adam Nathaniel Furman. And I wonder if you could speak to that relationship at all, if there's any kind of connection there for you. Yeah. Uh, we we share a lot of interests with with Adam and listen to that to that podcast uh, immediately when it came out, and we overlapped at the Architectural Association. I think we share a lot of interests with Adam, um, probably many things that we also don't share, but certainly this kind of maybe without speaking for for him, but speaking for ourselves. I think really at the core, it's an interest in in communication and language. Uh, it maybe sounds a bit abstract, and uh, but it connects with our discussion about freestyle and and media, um, because we really enjoy seeing like the world as language, really human the human world as as language in one way or another, and that everything sp- speaks even if it's not intended to. And of course, that's very divisive to to say in the world of architecture. Many many architects would strongly disagree, but of course, every single every single thing says something to the person that's observing it or perceiving it. And since we're interested really in, in kind of practice that exists across different medias, and it's not only physical, but also virtual, ideally, you know, the things that we create, they, they communicate and they speak in a kind of effective and kind of a clever way directly to what they're trying to to serve um which then kind of i guess speaks towards this maybe the way we sit at least internally the way where we do a kind of fast change between different expressions of surfaces and of styles and of things um and then often the color the question about color often comes up Mm -hmm. and you know some of the words that you used we definitely kind of agree but we also a lot of times gets called subversive and all sorts mm-hmm. of things, you know, people that are sort of uh, even offended by the way that we use, use these things. But if 
since we're interested really in communicating through whatever we're we're doing and how spaces and objects communicate to people, then it seems like many of the things like color, variety of textures, uh, which you also see in Adam's work, it seems like those are just more nuances and more words, let's say, or more letters than we often come to the conclusion, why not use them? And why not use every single way you have in order to, especially if you think about a virtual space where literally everything is language. You know, there's, there's nothing in there before you put something in there, which means that every single thing has intention, either functionally or, and of course, in, in a virtual space, function could just be that it speaks to you about what the environment is or what to expect, what's an affordance, what's not, etc. And then, you know, we like to be precise, uh, actually, with what, with what we do, which is then often why there's a lot of contrast, a lot of color, and, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk more about what you mean when you say virtual yeah. space. So, as an example, um, the exhibition at the RIBA, I think, opened just a few months before um, COVID became a global pandemic. And so had to close early but then was reopened online as a virtual exhibition. Um, and could you talk more about the platforms you used and also what other, what other, is platform the right word or venue or system would constitute virtual space for you? Maybe stuck is the word actually, no? what stuck you use basically like in terms of uh, what code are you using? But yeah, plat- mm. platform is usually the... Mm. It's interesting because the platform that we use is like you then use the code to be- build your own platform, mm. um, which is, in this case, we were using Mozilla Hub's mm. stack. And um, um, yeah, the, I mean, the, the freestyle had to close weeks, actually, not even a month mm. uh, after it opened. And up until that moment, we were always really keen on whenever we used uh, headsets in exhibitions which was pretty much all of them or all of them where we could uh, we could afford to do so the what something that was very important to us is uh, that to provide um, a good experience and also uh, of the this well, what we, we will define then what we mean by virtual space but uh, to provide an access to these virtual spaces that was uh, uh, using immersive hardware uh, not so that you really there was no frame you you could really feel like you were within it um and uh at that moment so up until then the the the, the strategy was to basically if you can bring a really good computer and a really good headset into the gallery where you are talking about ideas about how this type of media is going to influence architecture while you are also experiencing that media then the message is is uh, conveyed uh, through so many means, no? Through mm. through an argument that is usually unfolded through a narrative, but then also through the just the, the experience itself. And then, yeah, of course, then everyone is at home. No one can go into a gallery space, and um, we try to keep updated with uh, the community of uh, people who is developing immersive media. Um, and the, we started to see a lot happening in different what, what are called social VR platforms, which is really interesting because they are not games um, or like there is no mission in the game or nothing to play. The game is 
to come together and meet other people. That is fascinating, you know, like that is mm-hmm. what maybe every architect would hope public space would be, uh, but maybe it's not, or like it's a physical public space that does that in a much more subtle way. And maybe maybe I wouldn't feel very comfortable if random people comes and talk to me in, mm-hmm. in a, in, on the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in there, you literally go there and expect that people would come up to you and, and talk to you. And, and this was really interesting because it then transcended the, the hardware. Um, we we thought it was really dependent on it, all the experiences that we had created, and then we realized, like, well, actually, there is something happening in here, where a space has to be created as context or as backdrop for whatever to happen within it, and what a complex and interesting architectural brief that is, you no? Know? Um, and that goes back also to the way that we thought about briefs in the beginning of this, like when you start getting your first commissions and realize that briefs are not as specific as you thought as the ones you got in school where you could really go about it by solving problems and then suddenly, well, there is maybe less <laughs> ingredients <laughs> to solve and everything is actually quite open and that multiplied by 100 when you're creating virtual space, right? mm-hmm. which is like well, there is no problem or quote-unquote problem to solve. And um, we began to see the power of uh, these spaces in being social, and the fact that there there are many things happening at the same time. You may go to see an exhibition, but then you're also in a sort of a space and there is other people. And that complexity of multiple things happening at the same time started to become interesting in the sense that maybe it started to speak for what uh, um, architecture most often has to do many things at the same time that are partially defined, but not uh, completely specific and might change across time mm. Mm. Um, so we thought of course like well this is when you realize that the pandemic is going to be long and can we obviously we need to try and bring this online and we had been using that uh, that very platform uh, during the development of the exhibition uh, with uh, with the Shumi Bose uh, with these workshops uh, that we we were doing as part of the RBS education program mm. with uh, high school students. And uh, what we were testing out in those workshops is that we were using two um, platforms, right? We were using Mozilla Hubs as a, um, a means to to build uh, to, to build space with very simple, you don't need a massive computer, it's, you can use a simple laptop and so on, which is what uh, the students had access to. And we were using that together with Pinterest. Mm. So, this was, and there could be a whole other conversation about Pinterest, which we think is one of the most interesting tools uh, at the moment that I know everyone rolls their eyes <laughs> when it comes up, but there is something so inherently interesting about it. And um, it, we, with the students, um, it became very interesting because they, they did not have any architectural education. Um, so we worked very intuitively, just providing them a means to exchange aesthetic ideas, you know? and uh, and then they would put together collections of references, and then we would go back and analyze them. Right. So, like, okay, all of these things that you have put together, what do you think they speak for? And other people would come and and also, I mean, we would do that as groups and see. What is it that you're trying to convey? And with that, try to start opening doors to them on how you can then create uh, 
go about creating your own space now after you have um, gathered all those references and reflected upon what what those references are uh, speaking for so well those um, spaces in Mozilla Hubs that the students created were also part of the show and then we considered that um, we could try and do that with the show itself I mean maybe it's helpful to talk a little more about how the show how the show is designed both physically and then uh, virtually where the the organizing artifact or element is this giant rug that's unfurled across the entire expanse of the RIBA exhibition space. And on the rug um, is this striated graphic uh, that indicates uh, the evolution of style from the 1500s up until and beyond the present day, in fact. It runs diagonally and it begins with something very comprehensible and familiar um, in terms of these, this kind of sequential evolution of a style. But then as we near the present day and move beyond it, these styles become increasingly distorted and complex and interwoven until in some way you've created a new tapestry or a new pattern altogether that to me was probably, it could be best described as a kind of noise, a kind of technicolor noise. Um, and I think for me, because I, I think it should be said, like in full disclosure, I um, am also a photographer and was commissioned by you to document the exhibition. And I became totally enthralled in the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> which also, in a way, displays these different um, media devices from the printing press all the way to the VR headset. Um, but I became enthralled with the kind of noise that you produced on the carpet as a way of visualizing this contemporary moment of um, virtual space that we're moving into, I guess, that we're already immersed in to some degree. Um, and the incomprehensibility of that space, but it can only really be represented as noise at this point. And in that space of noise, I commend you for seeing a kind of utopian vision. Um, but then when I was there documenting the show, I was also seeing people who were to some degree immersed in that space with their headsets on, encountering the exhibition um, through that mode. and. Being outside of that space myself became aware of, in a way, I'm not going to say dystopian at this point, but um, I guess another view of that reality, which is a, is a view that we've become familiar with. And it's a view of the, the vulnerability of the digitally engaged. Um, and so we associate this with you know, people hunched over their phones and scrolling, or um, people kind of glued to their screens. And it conjures up to some degree ideas about addiction or ideas about the ways in which we're not only captivated by new media, but are, are captive as well within it. And I've got to say though that at the same time, um, 
we've always been captivated. <laughs> and a person hunched over a book is in some ways no different than a person hunched over a mobile phone. But I think there is this other realm of virtual space that I want to explore with you that has to do with virtual space as a space of, in some ways, surveillance, of advertising, of intense capital investment. I wonder if you could talk more about maybe the darker side of, of the virtual and how, as designers, um, you want to engage with that or combat it or respond to it. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> there's, there's a lot to, to talk about here. I mean, in many ways, of course, like the virtual spaces that we speak about now, these like mechanical worlds, not the sort of dreamy worlds you can see in a fresco or in a tapestry, they are already, but also has the, the capacity to become the most politically kind of charged surveillance spaces that humans have ever built. And actually, in order for them to work, they need to be surveillance machines. It's There's a paradox here where like the kind of things that people want to build, there's no way of building them without tracking a person's eye down to you know a nanosecond. And we spend a lot of time thinking about this and just uh, connecting with Lara, which is talking about, we choose, this is one of the things we do. We choose to work with the Mozilla Hub stack because it's the only uh, only space available, which is based on a, built by a nonprofit that has a, um, a pledge for a healthy internet manifesto at its core that does not have any functionality to to uh, grab any data, collecting it, any mm. any data. And it's open source. And it's open source. And we think that obviously, like like anything in a capitalist system, you vote with your with your market choice. Um, so we, even if it's certainly not the most uh, sort of highest fidelity or even potentially the most interesting, we we stick to it for these for these reasons. And there is something different happening now because obviously the freestyle research showed us that addiction that mm -hmm. has been around forever when it comes to media and the lengths that people went to like uh, Christopher <laughs> Wren to get the books he needed to do like yet another church was like pay an absurd amount of money for like literally a whole team to go around Europe uh, to scavenge new books and etc. And that goes for, you know, to varying degrees for all different kinds of media. Um, so the way that Queen Victoria was apparently obsessed by the, the stereoscope, you know, the first sort of VR device. Hmm. But it's it, there are many things that are different now. Um, as we say, you know, we are for the first time stepping into media where media is surrounding us completely. And of course, our physical body is still somewhere in the world. Um, but you know, a media where we have a presence in a way that we haven't had before. And it's possible that we read some sort of culmination. But this has also been said about previous media. You know, the amount of books and arguments written about how dangerous television was and how mm -hmm. it's going to destroy the world. And that has been said about everything from postcards to... Um, so we could, of course, be sort of overreacting. Uh, but it's possible that when we step into media, as we're doing now, um, the sort of possibilities will be overshadowed over the the shock to society for us it's inevitable that we step into media and mm -hmm. as we as we say at the kind of cornerstone of many of the sort of work we're doing is that we believe that 
by the middle of the 21st century, all media will be spatial, which would mean no more screens of any kind, no more laptops, no more smartphones, probably no no more billboards on buildings, etc. Um, which will probably mean a lot of amazing advantages and possibilities uh, when whatever we need media for, like communicate with other people or get information, whatever it happens to be, when that can be around you <clears throat> and in a, in a way that we can actually also share it potentially. There's a lot of really interesting and possibly amazing possibilities in the next 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. But having said that, there's also a possibility that this will serve as such a shock to the world you know, to kind of we often find a lot of inspiration in the in the now very old writing by Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian philosopher, about the fact that we can't fill a new medium with with new things. We can only fill it with the old things. And in this case, the shock um, might be so strong that we might see um, either governments or other organizations kind of kick back at some of both the addiction that might be created when, as we're already seeing, not just people's lives, but entire career is already happening uh, completely in this new spatial medium. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from dancers to performers to uh, all sorts of people. And when that's starting to happen, the shock to the rest of society might be so strong that um, we might start to see either bans or restrictions. And this is where it comes in the sort of our most recent um, propositions, or I guess you could call it a manifesto, that's always tricky, but I think people understand it best, that tries to somehow create some kind of contextual understanding of things that we think we need to do right now in order for for this not to become something so shocking that we have to shut it down, which is, of course, a possibility. I'm glad you brought up McLuhan, whose probably most famous declaration is that the medium is the message. And so... Despite the fact we can only fill new mediums with old, what is it? What was the line? Well, we can only fill new medium with old things. But the, the, with new mediums come new, new languages or new forms of expression or new vocabularies in a way. And so this kind of brings us to this question of value, uh, which you've often asked in the work you do, uh, specifically, how do we assign value to architecture uh, in a space where previous systems of value no longer apply. So in this case, scale, location, materiality, all of these things no longer hold any currency in virtual space. And so the cynical answer to that question is virtual space uh, becomes a kind of repository for digital assets. <laughs> um, it's a place where if you've sunk a lot of crypto on a new nft you can house it in the metaverse (laughs) but you're interested in other forms of value that emerge from um, new media and virtual media in particular and i think the value you're looking for is in the new language that comes along with new media and i wondered if you could speak more to these more optimistic kinds of value and their potentials in terms of the future of, of, of architecture? Yeah, the, the question of value is a, 
a very complex one. Uh, we often talk about it from the point of view of heuristics, which is um, basically the way you um, assign value to something based on your experience of how much effort would have gone into making that thing, right? I think that this definition, like maybe you might have noticed or like many of the the ways in which we think is this like trying to tap into the subjective uh, or into these realms that are very hard to, you cannot measure them and they rely very much on experience. And actually the writer Sarah Williams, Sarah Williams Goldhagen has this uh, beautiful um, description or, or like the, of experience that you sort of need to base it on a basically on us, some form of subjective universality on like more something we cannot measure but that we more or less all agree on it mm. which is also mm. the way i feel about things that like for example pinterest is doing it's like you we have a common understanding of this even if we cannot put words on it so mm. that is what's really interesting when you take value outside of numbers which I think it always is outside of numbers. I, I mean, I think movies like uh, The Laundromat, uh, so the Rogue's movie, or uh, or The Big Short, um, really bring you into understanding the the nonsense or like not, not accepting the the subjectivity with which things that we think are numbers based and very measurable mm-hmm. are actually mm-hmm. relying on things that are very much floating and so on. So these two, this. It all comes, even even um, notions of value that we feel are so objective and measurable, like monetary value, are um, are actually not so different from these more malleable ideas of value that maybe we we um, concern our ourselves with. And um, with regards to, like for example, the exhibition uh, "Value in the Virtual," curated by James Taylor Forster in um, at uh, Arctis in Stockholm. We were trying to just ask those questions and put them in a setting where, yeah, where they could be brought to a forefront. And the, the, it uh, highlights one aspect of uh, virtual worlds that um, where where that becomes really clear. Uh, that is the fact that as you step into a virtual world and related to uh, the McLuhan quote that Frederick was bringing up, you are... It's not a direct quote she just mentioned. That's basically the gist of it. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> um, we, it, we step into, let's say, a quote-unquote medium, new medium, and um, we do the things we know. No? We do the things we, we can speak, and, and therefore we fill it up with references, because otherwise it would be meaningless. And those references come with assignations of value. Mm. So at the moment we see gold or we see whatever, something that looks very complex with a lot of polygons and whatever, and we we see intricacy you know, in maybe that geometry and we see scarcity in the material that has been resembled. And even if we may know, like, well, actually that is not computationally very expensive or the process to do that computationally was not so hard, um, but I, I get that you are trying to communicate value. Now, how long we are when we will want to speak with that, let's say, again, quote unquote, old language? I don't know. Maybe then we start speaking a new language that derives from that medium. But we will only be able to come up with that language by inhabiting this medium. Yeah. Right. So this idea that you like step into 
a new format and you do something radically different, it's like, how is anyone expected to even be able to conceive of that? Mm-hmm. Whose mind? I mean, that's like a godlike mind that can actually conceive of something new. And part of the, the possible sort of hopeful visions of the future of architecture with specifically this lens of looking at virtual space comes together with um, with something that in most people's view is seen as something negative because architecture is one of those things that historically has really communicated ideas of shared value or, or you know, the, the buildings that are built then kind of functions as a way of a kind of cross-generational way of communicating values. That's at least it's been, been in the past. And if we imagine mm-hmm. that the way that people experience space and architecture can be totally individual and change by the second, it by necessity departs from that idea that everyone sees the same buildings, which means that buildings can communicate value across generations. And to some degree, the architecture profession is still, I think, operating in that way. Um, and that's, in some ways, a really positive quality. But it might also be really positive if we kind of slowly start to deal with this idea that, that architecture or things on architecture or architecture as a container can be a communication medium and not just the way that you know, a certain ornament communicates something. No, no, no. Literally, if that ornament is is actually speaking to you, you know, like in the language you understand. And we often have this kind of abstract quotes that that uh, we think, or not quote, but idea that will probably happen in our lifetime is that uh, we will experience architecture at the speed of the spoken word. Um, literally, mm-hmm. you being able to create space and experience space at the speed that you form words in your mind that you speak, you know, through your mouth. Um, and that we think is maybe seems scary, but like we are going to inch towards that very, very slowly. And once we're there, we will have, we think, just an infinitely more productive way to communicate with each other. Um, and we don't yet have any model for how that will be possible because it's technically not possible yet. But, but it, I think we're heading towards that direction and it will be once we're there really incredible. <laughs> I feel like I could end it there, but uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I just, I mean, I might end it there, but I really, I do want to keep going for a bit if you have time. Of course. Yeah. Um, I had so much trouble preparing for this interview, actually, because (laughs) I felt totally overwhelmed. Um, I think it's maybe because the work is so directly engaged with the moment we find ourselves in now, in a way that I feel like a lot of architecture isn't, Um, out of necessity, because of the um, scale and time it takes to produce it. And because we're so immersed in the present when we look at your work. Um, I guess it just feels very close. <laughs> I feel like I need, I still need to be comforted. Like what the spiel you gave me. Um, <laughs> um, I don't feel satisfied yet, or I still feel incredibly wary of where, um, where technology is taking us. And I cannot believe I'm saying this out loud because it's such a sign of maybe the 
the age I am now, or the time in life I'm in now, where I've kind of moved to the other side and I'm becoming slightly technophobic or uh, illiterate to new or emerging technologies, or also a Luddite, frankly. <laughs> and I think even five years ago, I wouldn't have been, but um, things develop so quickly um, and uh, it just all of a sudden becomes, I think, a brave new world that uh, I'm not prepared to contend with yet. And I think a lot of architects would agree with that and maybe not admit it openly, but instead defend the haptic value of real architecture, physical architecture, um, in, in a mindset that you've referred to as a haptic revival. <laughs> and I think it's such a, a fantastic way of putting it, and it's not to put it down or belittle it. And I think it's a defense that architects often rely on to uh, uphold the continued legitimacy or ever-increasing importance of real architecture in the face of um, a world that is increasingly digitized or digital or virtually experienced. Um, and so I think I'd kind of put myself in that camp to begin with, that I'm kind of clinging to the importance of the physical um, in a way that I guess in some senses is conservative, but is also frankly um, ignorant of, um, of the kind of virtual environments that we're moving into. And so the other part, I guess, that I think I need, <laughs> I, need you, I need you to help me with is um, the, um, <clears throat> the numerification of experience. Yeah. Um, we talked about surveillance and we talked about measurement and to some degree your resistance to it in terms of the platforms you've chosen to use. So Mozilla in particular, which doesn't collect apparently a lot of data about the users who engage with the platform. It's not tracking your retina. <laughs> um, or your heart rate or your blood sugar levels or whatever. But in fact, all of these metrics do exist now and are available. I mean, uh, everything from our fingerprints to uh, our facial profiles and all our biometric data is kind of out there now and available uh, for good or for bad. And I think that for me, there's still this hesitancy or wariness about where we're going in that regard. And also, therefore, um, what to do about it. <clears throat> and I think that you started to answer that question, but I wondered if you could, could you console me further? <laughs> yes. Or do you see, do, do you see the kind of work you're doing as in some way, um, do you have a kind of responsibility to address those concerns um, in a more upfront way? Because I think the kind of spaces that your work exists in now are the conceptual spaces of the gallery or the classroom, whether it's virtual or physical, or in conversations like these, which are more about the hypothetical. Um, but the subject is so real and it is so pressing now. And I just wonder because um, your work is so directly engaged with it, 
um, uh, what you see your responsibility being. Yeah. Well, in the spirit of the haptic revival, I would just give you a hug if we were not in Zoom. Which is <laughs> 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 the best of, form of comforting. <laughs> and maybe that also speaks for the, um, that the only way to do or for us to deal with these things is to like spend time with other people that is doing these things um, and uh, and to start noticing uh, what kind of what what kind of life takes place in these sort of spaces and I don't know it's like but when you you live in a city and you see people around you and you start having an understanding of the city and architecture by just being amongst those people and looking at them. And then if you look at them long enough without being a weirdo, (laughs) (laughs) then you start seeing something happening there, no? Like something begins to emerge. And I wanted to bring it to this realm so that, I mean, we could talk about the very particular issues and tracking and so on, but uh, I wanted to bring in more two things we have experienced in um, in virtual environments that have been so uh, informative to uh, and, and moving uh, in terms of what is that life? No, I think we almost need to take it out of the like nitty gritty little bits that are very important, but that's it feels like that's just the details. And if you take it to like what what is people choosing to do here? What are lives in here? Um, what are ex- human exchanges in here, then you maybe begin to see um, something else. And uh, spending time in some of these social VR platforms, we have experienced uh, moments with groups of people um, that have started to point towards things that, uh, that uh, like, have, sp- have started to point towards how these worlds are maybe fulfilling um needs that uh, that people has that that they are not finding room for in in maybe uh, in the places where they physically live i don't know like spaces where uh, people choose to go and uh, fall asleep together in virtual reality i mean that just like blew my mind completely and then started mm-hmm. to make me understand where are the comforts that that could provide mm-hmm. you know, that not having a physical body in there and then being able to comfortably fall asleep uh, amongst people. I mean, obviously, eventually you take off the headset and you went to sleep. But this, uh, Or uh, even um, looking at things like the way people use social media, I think it's a, it's a direct... Um, or you can link it directly to the, the individualization of life and even the invention of the corridor and the individual room of your own, Right. And then from mm-hmm. that room where you have your privacy, you are on your own, then you decide that you actually need to constantly reach out for others. So perhaps it's by looking at the things that we choose to do, and I mean, we, you know, at large, we can start to maybe comprehend why we do them. Um, and then, of course, come commercial interests and all these things uh, to very quickly uh, suck from it but mm. I feel like those are just like the the, the little fish <laughs> around <laughs> the big thing that is happening and uh, and that maybe thinking about what is it that is happening what kind of 
life do we seem to be <clears throat> moving towards? And still, I would say choosing, and maybe that is the optimism in me. Maybe a lot of people think they are not making this decision, but I think it is a sort of collective decision that we are making. So in understanding this kind of life we are choosing, we can maybe see the the humanity um, in it. Maybe I completely went like dodged your <laughs> question, but I. But I think like another this, another yeah. perspective here is also that that we actually think that we need more skepticism than what there is now, and this has to do probably with the fact that the step is so big at the moment. You read now; everyone is reading about this, uh, you know, with the recent Facebook rebranding, etc. But only now. I mean, it took for Facebook <clears throat> to basically claim the mm. whole thing mm-hmm. for everyone to like yeah, wake but up. I, mm. But we think that that you know, we should all be voicing our our concerns about this because, as I said, we said earlier, this shift in media might be so shocking that it it literally breaks part of of human societies or create such incredible rifts between generations. You know, many of the same things that we create, have historically critiqued other medium are possibly doing. This is even more potential to do that. And of course, to give power to, in, in this case, companies, uh, power that they really shouldn't have. Um, so I think we would want to leave anyone who's listening to this or, or the kind of work that we do and audiences that we might have with, uh, an encouragement to pay attention and to to not sort of buy into things you might just hear or and to uh, we would rather see this happening very very slowly um, and well and in a healthy way rather than it happening even within our lifetime. Certainly, we are in a trajectory that you know learning from the research with freestyle. The first AR headsets were built in the 50s, um, and these dreams have been around for a very, very long time, and it's been happening slowly, and we hope that it continues happening slowly. I know that a lot of people are going to be very disappointed when you realize that this thing people call the metaverse, we're not going to get there in maybe 10 or 20 years. Um, so all of these these kind of shock value loaded articles that are coming out, they're, they're also not on point with with really what's happening and hopefully a good and healthy critique starts to build up um, amongst the kind of larger population this also ties in with our next project this the big research project about portals in in fiction uh, as a means to kind of looking at things that are popularized that will serve as important mechanisms in this future spaces and for us big thing that we're realizing is that many of these things that we might look at to inform fantasies or imagination of what these virtual spaces might be like, they're based on quite questionable and sometimes horrendous narratives. Um, so it's not just what we do in virtual spaces now, but what we bring into them from previous media history uh, of everything from capitalism, uh, colonialism, slavery in some case, elitism, Etc. Etc. You know things that don't. There are not a nature to this new medium. They actually come from stories told in previous mediums. Um, so, yeah, maybe a good way of going about it is to uh, try to withhold judgment and observe more, um, and then you see the different parts of uh, of these things that are happening. And I think. Uh, we're at a time where we also seem to be very hard on ourselves. Um, with the things that 
we maybe feel attracted to do and that we enjoy doing and then we have already imprinted judgment on that and then we get to feel really bad about it and, and I just think that like maybe withholding that judgment um, allows you to observe and to see the reasons maybe for or to see at least a, a trajectory for how one makes uh, decisions in the way that you yeah you, you choose to maybe in this case uh, we're talking about like make use of media or uh, or resort to media for certain things right so mm. yeah Laura and Frederick thank you so much for your time thank you Matthew this was so much fun thank you You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Lara and Frederick. Thanks as always to Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'm off for the next couple weeks, but I'll be back in late February. See you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.